0: Welcome to the Talking Transformation podcast. I'm your podcast host, Peter Ahmad, recording from Cape Town, South Africa, since June 2019. The Talking Transformation podcast provides an open and accessible platform for built environment professionals and interest groups to share their reflections and aspirations relating to the transformation of places and spaces in South Africa. It's intended to be a celebration of the individuals and community groups. are supporting formal and informal processes that are addressing the challenges of South Africa's history and shaping the future of our neighborhoods and cities. Welcome to the third series of the Talking Transformation podcast, returning after an extended break, the last episode being published in October of 2022. Thanks to all of our guests and listeners for supporting the podcast in that year of 2022. The podcast remains an interactive and dynamic platform to support built environment professionals and community groups to reflect on their stories and approaches the podcast is a reminder that despite our numerous challenges there are great stories and successes to reflect on it'll be interesting to see how 2023 plays out for communities in the different spheres of government national and provincial elections are approaching on the horizon the turbulence we see particularly in those coalition metros up in gauteng reminds us that the noise and the complexities will continue. Load-shedding, water resource management, land invasions, flooding, all of these have had impacts on households, on communities and more broadly the towns, the cities and regions. And it's imperative that collectively we dial up the positivity, seek opportunities for implementation and impact in the work that we do and the partnerships we foster. In 2022, we touched on partnerships and collaborations within the municipal sphere of government we kick off 2023 and this new third series of the Tolkien Transformation podcast, revisiting that theme and reflecting on town planner Ashley Manyara's recent study tour and studies based in the cities of Tokyo and Yokohama in Japan. It was a real pleasure to chat to Ashley, a former colleague, about her adventures and the lessons learned. On the day of recording this introduction, I and about 50 others attended the memorial service for Shahid Solomon, who recently passed on. Many others also participated via an online live feed. I never did get the chance to chat to Shahid on this particular platform, and that remains a great regret. I do, however, wish to extend my condolences to Shahid's family, friends and colleagues. Shahid left an indelible mark on communities across the country and the professional world of planning that he was such a cornerstone of. This episode is dedicated to the memory of Shahid Solomon. It's just gone 5.20 on Monday the 30th of January 2023, the first podcast of a new year and I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by former colleague, senior professional <laughs> officer in the Metropolitan Planning Department, Ashley Manyara. Ashley, how are you keeping?
1: I am great, thanks and yourself. Thanks for the introduction. And how are you?
0: Me? I'm fine. It's, as I say, <laughs> it's just great to finally have you. I think you and I have talked, you've been one of the big supporters of the podcast over the years. You've often given me feedback around what you liked and probably more importantly, what you didn't like on the podcast. So thank you for that. And really looking forward to hearing from you about your experience, particularly last year. You've got a rich CV in the planning world, but last year it took you far afield into Japan and some studies there, and I'm looking forward to hearing about your experience there. But before we get stuck into that, how's the year started? How has January treated you? And what's been keeping you busy these last few months since we last caught up?
1: The year started on a high note. The excitement of the trip in Japan and all the learnings have given me the jump start for the year, so I'm excited. I have something to show in terms of a tangible product for all the 18 months that I spent on the study, and then obviously the trip itself, so... There's been quite a lot to be able to share, so I'm quite excited. And what's been keeping me busy, uh, well, the MSDF finally approved recently. But apart from that, trying to create some of the implementing mechanisms that a lot of this work is based from. So it's a big year ahead.
0: You allude to the MSDF, the Municipal Spatial Development Framework. That's a really important plan for a city like Cape Town. Tell me a bit about that and more broadly the work that you do within the, the planning unit. What does what a typical day or a typical month look like?
1: There isn't a typical day or a typical month. Being a planner, our na- nature is to be the jack of all trades and master of none. I think that really resonates. Um, within the metropolitan spatial planning context. My primary role is to implement the MSDF, it sounds quite vague, but the different mechanisms that we can employ, deploy to realize a lot of our um, spatial transformation goals. So a lot of my work in the more recent SDF is around the investment rationale. So the directing spatial transformation and what that means tangibly to the common person, to a business, to a small business. To your large investors, how do we allow ourselves to be more competitive? So I think I I really fought for the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, to be part of that packaging and the technical review. And I think my largest contribution is around the policy statements within the MSDF that I like to think I contributed quite a lot of that, but mostly around the economic and the transport component. The typical day is is trying to find ways to realize a lot of these elements in our daily transactions as planners.
0: And how did the work that you do and the, I say it's policy work, it's, it's different sectors that you're looking at you've also worked with some of the tools and i'm sure we'll talk about the spatial costing tool or scot as it's it's quite well known but i mean how did all of these these work elements take you to japan and prior to that obviously the course and what was the course about how did that shape some of your thinking in the review
1: the review itself influenced the work there was a lot of consultation of discussions testing hypotheses with colleagues testing a lot of the challenges that we were facing at the time were still COVID, the energy sustainability being important. A lot of the work that was put into the Cape Town Action Plan that was presented in Yokama, Japan, was based on being part of a lot of those processes and trying to find alignment and coordinate in terms of, for example, having the new May come in with the new IDP. That gave a lot more strategic guidance as to where to focus. Mm-hmm. So I got the impetus there. And there was more or less almost a similarity in, in that you can see there's a change, a general discourse, and there's a shift to sustainability and a more inclusive economy. And so a lot of those elements were part of the technical review. And Scott, the spatial costing tool and the work that I've put into it, helped provide the evidence base, so how we actually can quantify how we measure the impacts of some of the decisions that we make or the policies that we make. It was actually a concurrent process. And with that, it allowed us to actually allow me to review the model. Um, Over the past, I think 18 months, we tested it on various types of applications. So de-densification of informal settlements in in the heart of COVID, as well as feasibility for certain sites. More recently, looking at qualifying some of the spatial arguments around the Cape Winelands airfield, your N1 corridor, and running some of those numbers in the model and realizing some of the missing links are transport and realizing that as a municipality, we have to get the right entity to provide that missing link. Providing that evidence base um, and corroborating and testing it through the process was one of the outcomes of that process.
0: It seems obvious, but let's not take anything assumed. Why is understanding costs in relation to infrastructure, whether it be capital costs that are obviously for the project and then the maintenance and the operating costs, why are those important for a municipality, a metro, such as Cape Town or whether it's a neighbouring municipality like Tiervatas Group? Why are these things important for municipalities?
1: As a whole, and not only South African context, if you look at just the global precedent, fiscal sustainability and fiscal austerity is Is such a huge indicator to the potential and the performance of a city. Understanding where we spend the money as a municipality, understanding where the opportunity costs are, and understanding where the deficits lie is very important to be able to understand the long term implication. That's not me even bringing in the regulatory requirements. You know, you have the Spatial Planning Land Use Management Act and its regulations, where fiscal sustainability is one of the tick boxes in which, you know, um, not even a tick box, You have to demonstrate Mm. that you're making a decision that is fiscally sustainable, that you consider all costs, future and current costs of the development being proposed. So whether it's social infrastructure or hard infrastructure, there's a need to have a holistic understanding of what that bottom line is. And maybe just to round off on that, the importance, I think, also as being a citizen and being a planner is that at the end of the day, it's state and you have the private sector and then you have the people. So when we look at things, we see state on entities and those kind of things. But at the end of the day, the bottom line all feeds into state. So it's very important to consider the fiscal impact of the decisions that we make. And not only in the short term, it's more so in the long term, the sustainability elements. Are key.
0: What happens when things go wrong, when you don't get that sustainability element hardwired into the decision making?
1: What we're currently seeing, the trends that we're seeing, so the sprawl, the inefficiency, the spatial inefficiency, the lack of service delivery or aging infrastructure that hasn't been reinvested in. So what we're seeing is an exacerbation of a lot of the issues that we're challenged with as cities, so being one of the most unequal societies in the world, grappling with those components and not being able to provide the right expenditure to provide economic opportunities or create access. So public transport, you know, the biggest indicator for OECD countries when you look at the literature is how much they spend on infrastructure that by itself has a contribution to its gross domestic product. So if we're not being financially sustainable and spending where we need to be, we're not making the impact and we don't actually get a return on our investment as a state or as a municipality and their long-term implications. So, for example, if you quantify the costs of displacing industrial land, for example, there's so many other things you have to think about but the macroeconomic implications of displacing land that could potentially provide higher density opportunities to low-skilled or semi-skilled workers that is in proximity to public transport provides that opportunity to reduce the transport costs and allow the person to actually spend on services. And that expenditure, that buying power is, is so powerful and that fiscal sustainability at the end of the day helps, I think, everyone in, in the development space. So even as an individual, your contribution. If I can just maybe add, for example, understanding when there's a strike in that loss of to infrastructure, damaged infrastructure, being able to quantify and understand that over A five-year period, that could make a massive dent in changing the trajectory of a certain area or settlement. It's very important to be able to understand where our money is going and what we're spending and what the return is on our investment.
0: You're alluding to at least three scales there. There's the household, there's the municipality itself, and then there's mm-hmm. the sectors. that I mean, You talk about different land uses and sectors like the industrial sector, etc. Mm-hmm. But it's of no surprise to me that the Japanese International Cooperation Agency, or JICA, mm-hmm. yes. as I think it's, it's known, that they would be interested in this. And you alluded to an action plan. What is it they were offering, and how did your offering as part of the Cape Town team meet their needs and how did you then integrate into the sort of curricula that was being discussed there?
1: The JICA course is actually called the Knowledge Co-Creation Programme so it's a collaborative initiative through the Japanese government and the Foreign Affairs Ministry that committed I think since 2008 to improve the skills of municipalities within Africa. But with the onset of COVID, there was a renewed commitment by the Japanese government to upskill and provide a unique look at how to overcome some of the challenges we are having with COVID and how the Japanese as a country has gotten to a stage that they are able to respond a lot more resiliently to shocks and stresses like COVID. So there was definitely an impetus from the economic recovery. Uh, And so through the national treasury, there was a call for participants in all the metropolitan uh, municipalities. We really got an in-depth understanding of how the local government systems work in Japan. We got to understand the local financing, why they are where they are today. They are a developed nation and it's taking steps to get there and being able to understand those steps as a plan and trying to be able to understand how one contextualizes that in our own space was the end goal. So being able to apply the skills that we learned. So we learned from public finance, management, urban development, we did infrastructure planning, there was digital transformation, there was just a lot of material that we covered. I think that's also a culture in Japan, learning. So there was a lot of information that we absorbed over that period of time and ultimately the key outcome of the course was to be able to have a plan for each municipality what that would provide actionable set of outcomes in resolving a certain problem that's associated with policy or decision-making. So Scott really fit in because there was that endorsement that was achieved for Scott as a policy and decision-making tool. It was really trying to build upon the work that had been happening as we were reviewing the MSDF. And I think that was the approach that I took, that instead of looking for an isolated problem, we work within a very complex built environment. Let me try to make sense of it within the context of how the Japanese see it, you know, so an eighty twenty approach. The theory is great, but how do you actually get that into implementable set of actions within a logical framework and how that's time bound? It was basically a commitment from the city of Cape Town and all the metros to be able to action and implement certain elements of that. And I think that it's fit very well because a lot of the elements have been embedded within the MSDF process. The seeds were planted through the process. There was always a line of sight that the work was going to culminate into something useful, that all the engagement done internally, externally, and a lot of the demystifying that had to be done was part of the process, and that Scott provided the platform as an evidence-based tool to aid in that process and making more clear decisions.
0: Who else was there with you, and what were they bring in as the themes to support the program as a whole?
1: There were a total of three metros, including the city of Cape Town. So it was city of Mangawung, an Etiquini municipality, and obviously the city of Cape Town. If we can just start with the metros, Mangawung, probably the most well-represented municipality. We had the general manager for human settlements. We had the general manager for roads as well. And we had the almost the CFO, supply chain management and finance, present and all in one team. Fantastic. That was a great ensemble of participants and City of Tswani on it, one participant. And then National Treasury had a number of officials from the intergovernmental relations that really did make the whole program Mm. happen. So a large thanks to the team. The officials were in the field of senior economists or budget analysts. So there was a lot of expenditure representatives from National Treasury. So that was the ensemble. And then from the city of Cape Town was myself from spatial planning and with Carl within our project portfolio management and project preparation um, unit.
0: How did the team take to a Town Planner coming in and telling the number people about their business, about how to think about numbers from a planning point of view, but really dealing in their space?
1: It was challenging. I think that I was the only planner on the team. The concepts of the costs and integrated planning and understanding that the Japanese government have refined a lot of this thinking that's quite rudimentary to us, but they've advanced that process so well. I think it was a challenge of, or part of the process of being able to understand the concerns of our national treasury colleagues around, you know, expenditure, but then being able to understand why they're concerned. And as a planner, and interacting with colleagues in my in the transport department, I can definitely understand what the concerns are. You know, you, you understand that there's certain systems that need to be Place with certain legislations that really need to come together. I do think that having a planner in that dynamic was very useful. I think that when you go to a different context, it's so easy to say, How do you solve this within XYZ context? as opposed to, This is how they've done it. How can you apply it in your context? So I had that problem solving type of approach. And so that was very different. People always wanted the answers, and I was willing to look for the answers. And I think that's something different. And I think they took a while to being told how to get around Yokohama with a map. I did not need Google Maps. So (laughs) I think that uh, being a planner, you cannot get lost. I really enjoyed my ability to find my way around and those wayfinding elements there that you really would love to have in Cape Town. It was was quite interesting.
0: What was your first impressions? Stepping off the plane, stepping probably onto public transport. It's flashy. (laughs) It all seems to work. What was your immediate thoughts?
1: I think as a plan, I really appreciated the order, the structure, the um, harmony. Taking the flight back, you realize that they're not really worried about the capitalist component of it. For example, you know, in Singapore, you can buy a bottle of water, whereas in Japan, the constitution's based on their diet, so everywhere you go, they always have access to the food, water, or you know, finding SIM cards in the vending machine. So a lot of the technology that really blew me away, and I understand why the need for that is, but I realized that we have normal and similar problems and challenges to get to where there have been, you know, free Wi-Fi on the bus was quite nice as well. So small things like that, feeling safe. I think that was um, my hypervigilance stopped like two days afterwards, realizing that I'm actually very safe. And I think that was the big cultural um, experience with difference is feeling safe and not saying that nothing bad happens, but I could walk home at two o'clock in the morning you know not have to worry and that's something you'd want for someone else and our community at large that was the one component and that everyone's incredibly friendly helpful even if they can't speak English or the fact that people are willing to go out of their way to help you that's a source of pride I saw within the people as well and also going out of the way to make us feel as South Africans to feel at home they took us to the uh, South African embassy in Tokyo we got to meet um the minister it was it was an amazing experience and they took us to Yokama Stadium where the Fox won you know they really took us out so that was yeah the hospitality I think that's why I'd love to go back again Loved
0: experience. Fantastic. What did you notice about other elements of the Japanese culture that resonated, or that uh, you, you reflected on?
1: I think I mentioned this: the culture of learning and relearning. This is article written by the World Bank Institute around the local government system in Japan and how they've evolved. and it shows you what the culture and the power of learning is and the power of education. Looking back, I think the one thing that stands out is going to a town in Shiwa, a rural town, and knowing that six-year-olds know what the SDGs are versus as a professional when you have to actually debate those things you know, in a professional environment you know, around SDGs. So that really showed me the importance of knowledge, power, and access to it and creating access to it. Um, and that there are multiple ways that we can innovate around that. And I think that's also a cultural component, is being able to innovate with the needs of the people. Everywhere I would go, the experience and interface or interaction with technology was always different. You were never prepared. You know, it was just painted where you were. And I think that the last thing that was quite important for me is being mindful. And I think that's the culture that the Japanese, it's, it's being mindful of other people. It's being mindful of knowing what constraint that one works within. So if you don't have a lot of sidewalk space, you are going to make sure that everyone's in a single file, you know. And there's are stark differences. And I realized from Cape Town, it was the African countries. We just walk and we don't care. And I, I started seeing myself slowly kind of realizing that I always stand to my left. And an escalator, small things, just being more mindful of other people and um, and the spaces. And, and I realized That the spaces are where people really spend a lot of the time or time outside to socialize, and you can tell how this space is for people for all you know so that that was definitely something i took back on my flight my 27 hour flight back it's That's, far. <laughs> yeah i think i racked up enough carbon emissions for the year so i, w- I will go
0: another time <laughs> i'm sure i'm sure you'll find a way to atone on that on the sdgs through your uh, msd review efforts uh, <laughs> but you've talked about the public realm and and, and and how the design is important i mean The built environment there is quite extreme. I mean, the densities are extreme, the living space. So, I mean, to my mind is a very good example of how you've got to get the public realm right in order to have that type of living, Mm. because clearly it wouldn't be living for everybody Mm. because the densities are extreme. Any reflections on some of the public open spaces you saw, the way that the social amenities were available and that type of thing?
1: With the example of Turkey, you're right exceptionally dense. Mm. Um, public open space, when you go to the Tokyo Skytree, you can actually see a lot of the rooftops being used for, for open space, for sports fields. Um, I think that what's unique is is how we define the public realm because the public realm also includes mass transit, your access to the station and those type of spaces. So when the design of the built the public realm it incorporates those elements so how you connect from the train to that you know that's a social space if i recall properly a lot of the requirements are you need a certain extent Wide for pedestrian, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you need two meters for foliage and so forth. So that's specific with Yokohama. They're quite specific on the parking mustn't be visible as you walk, you know, because the pedestrian comes first. So So you
0: prescribed code, yeah. yeah,
1: You know, apart from that, you can build whatever you want. It's probably just the colour and the height, you know, small things like that. But the interaction with the public realm is very important, more so. I think Japan faces uh, the challenge of a declining and an aging population. So how those spaces look like now when we went, which was in November, looked rather empty because there wasn't quite a lot of people. But again, it's realizing that when you also build and when you get to that apex and you're quite developed, you still do need to sustain the thresholds to support those populations or the populations to support the infrastructure because those are some of the challenges as you have that, but you don't have the people. Those were quite critical elements, understanding that the public realm is obviously a function of your overall planning. But then we also went to smaller parts of Yokohama where you have the community paying 30% of their uh, like rates to ensure that a park is built in their area, you know. And those amazing type of approaches and I'm sure that if we applied our minds we could find ways to to do that. And sitting in the presence of the community, the city officials, and obviously an intermediary, that, that was also great to see how actively involved the placemaking is. You know, so it's not only the responsibility of the municipality. There's an ownership of the community, and it's that role sharing and that mindfulness, respect. That I think it's that mutual respect that you need to be able to also uplift yourself, and but you also need to have the tools and the means to do that. So that that was really a great experience to see the skills in which the public realm and and how people contribute to that because the f- the finance is also scarce in Japan i think the debt ratio per person is incre- it's it's very high mm-hmm. the cost of living i would say it's not cuz i i was a foreigner so i i was visiting but if you diet is the core of your constitution it makes sense that farming trade and all of these type of industries are um, performing well to ensure that everyone's fed, that this a mm. sustainable economy, and that's very imp- that's very important and and makes that direct correlation to to the the planning, the local government systems, and that's again something in that article by Farouk Iqbal from the World Bank Institute. I think it's a great article to kind of take you through some of the the milestones as to how the the citizens. Um, movement in the 50s changed i think that's what we are going through as south africans at the moment where we are upset and we want to not be governed anymore we want to have a, an active role in some of the decisions so that's very good contrast kind of show the the evolution i think that we are part of that journey or on that journey as we speak
0: so really interesting sort of almost thinking about the whole what does new governance mean and some of the lessons learned in that transition post-war, uh, from the Second World War, yeah. that amazing rebuild that Japan really had to find itself in a new order, a new world order, rather. Thanks for your reflections, Ashley. It, it sounds amazing. And I'm so delighted that you've been able to share not just your observations around what you saw, but also the, the way that some of the work that you've done here landed in that space. And bringing it back home to your Cape Town work, your space with the city of Cape Town how have some of the lessons learned and there, how are you trying to transfer that? We talked a bit about the MSDF and how some of those elements were already being wired into the MSDF review, the spatial costing tool and so forth. How are you trying to think about how you can land some of the learning in that space?
1: What's at the fore is around the optimization of the port. One of the success stories that I can say i brought down from Japan is that our striker, if there's a possibility for us to, as city of Cape Town, Cape Town, and also supporting the mayor's commitment to optimizing the port, that there could be an international agreement with Yokohama because it's the best performing port in the world who else better to learn from and cape town is 365 out of 370 and i think durban currently has been prioritized by the national ports authority as the port to optimize why can't we have both of those the cape town port and durban port be optimized and work in conjunction with yokohama you know the resources are there the platform is there to actually initiate that and it would take us one step further to being able to respond to the unemployment and the structural unemployment at scale because that is the ultimate end goal is to find an approach that will have the biggest impact and it would be leveraging the Cape Town port. How have I landed that to date? I think that obviously there are challenges around mandate but a lot of the work though supporting the port and its functionality is coming through this process so we understand that the highest and best use and issues around climate change and pardon island or areas that are mostly susceptible to flooding you know we can quantify and say well actually it's probably best used for industrial anyway it's close to the port congestion the made of issues and be able to provide the sound evidence base so from that perspective the ability to formulate the business case that is defensible so that's one step. I don't know how to get that triad port thing going, but I have made some connections and I have submitted my report to the city manager. So a lot of these recommendations are known in terms of the opportunities that lie ahead. It's just how we take that forward. And I think that's largely dependent on our planners to see some of the values associated with the port and the opportunities to leverage that and, and really reduce your unemployment and reduce transport costs that was one of the biggest issues that the japanese team and the feedback was you choose that 43 percent it's after all the presentation it was a great presentation but the transport cost needs to go down Significantly. And so there's definitely opportunities to work at those elements, but I think that a larger team to support that thinking and to kind of contextualize a lot of the learnings. So, area specific and context specific responses are required versus the more blanketed approach, more nuanced and responsive type of approach.
0: Well, be- best of luck landing that. I think that sounds like a really, really good example. I mean, can't think of many better transversal examples or study areas than the port, given it's different government players, the different mm. departments, even from the city, who would be involved. And yeah, all the best with landing that, Ashley, and really hope that next time we talk, we can pick up some of that around what worked and what, what's still in process. But again, congrats to you and the team around getting the MSDF approved. Thank you. And look forward to seeing how that starts to play out in its implementation. And how we start to see more of these tools used and uh, impacting on decision-making. So thank you for sharing your observations on Japan. Thank you for sharing the tools and the thinking. There may be certain websites that are useful to listeners, particularly around JICA, where people can find out more about that. You've also talked about the World Bank paper. Maybe you want to share a couple of those websites or URLs that can lead people to that information.
1: Definitely. Thanks, Pete. So for this spatial costing tool, there definitely is a report by National Treasury and Cape Town's application. And so I will... I have provided that link and you can put that into the link at the bottom, as well as a video from from JICA themselves of just the local government systems and how the financing works and some of the constraints and opportunities, especially on the demographics and the geographical constraints and obviously the infrastructure. So there's a link to that as well. And then there is also a link to um, that World Bank Institute article by Faruk Iqbal that will also be shared as well that you can
0: access. Fantastic. Well, thank you. What we'll do is we'll make sure we share that on the Twitter platform that typically supports us when there are additional uh, linkages and resources that are available. If you're struggling to find where these links are, please look for the Talking Transformation podcast on the Twitter platform. That's uh, Talking Transfer and the number one. So thanks very much, Ashley. Anything further before we wrap?
1: I just want to say a huge thank you to the team that we went with in Japan. It was an amazing experience to learn from other municipalities and other departments. Um, So that has been a huge learning curve. And I'm extremely grateful for the experience and to the city as well, affording me the opportunity to work and study. Uh, So that's been a great one. So thank you very much. And thanks to you as well for having me.
0: Absolutely, my pleasure, Ashley. Really great way to kick the year off, restart. This will be the first of series three for the Talking Transformation podcast, and it's been an absolute delight to have you on. All the best to you, all the best to the team. Look forward to catching up with you soon. Awesome. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this content of the Talking Transformation podcast. Please feel free to give us feedback via our Twitter platform, that's at Talking Transfo and the number one, or alternatively via our email address, TalkingTransformation101 at gmail.com. Thanks and recognition also to Tribal Need for allowing us to use their track, flags, as our introductory and closeout music on this podcast.